Alright, good morning everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning here at My House Discipleship Center. My name is Dave Everett and we're going to be continuing our teaching this morning, excuse me, on uh, being established in righteousness. Okay, this, I believe this is part 8 of our series so far. And as I've shared before, we actually have six segments of this teaching. We're actually going to be starting segment number four today, okay, which is entitled Subtle Beguilement. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Just so you know, all of our teachings are archived on our website at lighthousediscipleship.org, as well as our YouTube channel, Lighthouse Discipleship Center. And so we uh, thank you also for all those who have partnered with us with their tithes and their offerings. In case you're wondering how to do so, you can simply go to our website at lighthousediscipleship.org and go to the right top corner. It's highlighted in blue. There's a blue button, and it says Give, and you can get all of our information there. Okay, um, with all that information, with all that uh, announcements, let's go ahead and jump right on in. As I said, we're, been, we're doing a teaching on being established in righteousness. As most of you know that you are connected with us, uh, that is our main teaching here. Everything we teach here is based on this foundation of righteousness. Okay, and so over the years I've broken this, uh, and I... I over the years, I teach this periodically, but over the years, I've also uh, developed this into six segments. Or, um, that's the best way I know how to describe it for me. Uh, but anyway, um, we're going to start uh, the fourth segment this morning, and that's entitled Subtle Beguilement. And we'll explain that as we go forward here in just a moment. Okay? So, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll begin with verse 10. And this will just uh, be a springboard to the, the direction we're going to go this morning and for this segment. Okay? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And it reads from, uh, it reads from night and day. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, night and day I'm praying exceedingly that we may see you for your face and perfect what is lacking in your, in your faith. So I, I use it as a springboard. Because Paul's writing to the church of Thessalonica, he's in the first letter that he wrote there, he's in chapter 3, and he says, I'm praying for you night and day, and I hope to see you face to face, that we may perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now some people will read this, or some people will hear this, and they will be offended, okay? Now Paul is saying he's going to perfect that which is lacking in their faith. This is not condemnation. Remember in verse in, um, in Timothy, when Paul says, all scripture is proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God can be duly equipped for every good work. Being reproved, being perfected, is not a bad thing. We all need that. It's called discipleship. Okay? None of us have all the answers. And none of us had all the answers when we got born again. All of us are, have somewhere in our theology we're wrong on something. None of us is none of us is bad in a thousand here. Okay, and I'm not, that's not a condemnation, but we all need perfection. We all need discipleship. We all need someone who can come along that God has ordained to be in our lives to come to perfect that. I hope I'm bringing some perfection to some of your faith. Okay, but I need it too. I need pastors and teachers to speak into my life. Okay, see this word perfecting means to complete, to restore, to mend, to equip, to put in order, to strengthen. And none of those definitions is a bad thing. Who does 
Christians not want their faith strengthened. <coughs> me. Christians not want their faith strengthened. Who do not? Who doesn't want to be equipped in their faith? Most of us, if not all of us, need our faith restored and mended at some point in time. Okay, some of our faith has been shipwrecked for various reasons. Okay, we need something just need to be put in order. You know, um, I love it when people give me their testimonies, and I love it when people give me their opinion that Ronald has got me and biblical. But I, and as much as I respect them. I can't put my faith in their commentary, their opinion, or their, or their experience. I can only put my faith in the Word of God. And some of our experiences, and some of our commentary, opinions, is like a nose that has two holes in it. We all, have a, we all have one, but it's like a nose and it has two holes in it. Most of our opinions, we might be right on some things, but we're not right on everything. Okay? Our faith needs to be perfected. If your faith is not working, then perhaps there's something, there's a disconnect. There's something that needs to be put in order or strengthened, okay, to make, to make it complete. So Paul is simply saying, a church that he's apostle over, he's saying, I, 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 pray, I pray exceedingly day and night that we can come and see you face to face so we can perfect, we can strengthen what is lacking in that's not a put down. We all need that. <coughs> okay? And so, when I think of lacking your faith, or when I think of faith, I think of a passage that I like to teach from author from Jeremiah chapter 17. So let's go there. In Jeremiah 17, we'll begin in verse 5 here in just a second. In Jeremiah 17, God says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusted a man and making flesh his arm, <coughs> whose heart departed from the Lord, for he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and the salt land and not inhabit it. Blessed the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when he comes. Coming. But he, her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. So this passage in Jeremiah is comparing a blessed man with a cursed man. Okay? So it's very hard, it's going to be very hard for you to misunderstand that. Okay? The cursed man is cursed because he's trusting in man. Whether that be himself or others or both. The blessed man is blessed because he just trusts in the Lord. It's as simple and as complicated as that. Who are you trusting? Because if you're not trusting the Lord, then you need someone to come along and protect that which is lacking in your faith. Okay? Because if you are trusting in man, you're cursed. I didn't say it. Word of God did. Okay? So don't get at me for being the messenger. Okay? Now, when I teach this, I, I, I teach you that both the cursed man and the blessed man have a blind spot. Okay? What do you mean a blind spot? Well, <coughs> the cursed man shall not see when good cometh. 
the good is coming to both men. But the blind man, I mean the cursed man, doesn't see it. Why? Because he's not focused on God. He's not focused on the goodness of God. He's focused on man for his strength. Who's sin? We have a problem. There's something lacking in our faith. But the blessed man also has a blind spot. He doesn't see when the heat cometh. See, the, the cursed man, he's in the, he's in the desert, in the parts, inhabited parts, places, in the wilderness, in the salt land where there's no inhabitation. He's just existing. He's like, um, he's like a, a, a heat, a shrub in the desert. He doesn't see the heat when it comes. Okay? But the, but the blessed man, he's spread out the roots by the river. The leaves are always green. It's not careful in the year of drought, nor ceases to yield fruit. But even though the cursed man doesn't see the good when it comes, because it comes, there's still a river. But it's just existing because it's, it's focus and trust and reliance is on man. Okay? It's just existing. And there's a curse. But the blessed man is focused on the Lord and the Lord alone. Okay? It's prosperous, it's green. The heat is there. The, fat, the same heat that the cursed man is experience is there. But he's not focused on what's going on around him. His focus is on God. So no matter what's going on, even if they're in a famine, his reliance and his trust is in God. And he's blessed. Okay? So if we are not experiencing what the blessed man is experiencing, Houston, we need someone to come and perfect that which is lacking in our faith. Okay? That's my message to you. But I can't tell you how many times I need to hear my same message. Because there's times in my life, and even since I'm in the ministry, where I have experienced nothing but the desert. In a parched place that seems like there's no inhabitation. I've experienced this. Why? Because in the moment, or in that season, I'm so focused on man, I'm so focused on the problem, I'm so focused on the heat, the famine, the scorching sun, that I'm not focused on God, and I don't see his goodness. When there's a sometimes, I mean, I'm healed, I've hit all silvers. I mean, I'm just green, I'm, I'm blessed, I'm, I'm flourishing, why? Because I focus on God, and I'm not focused. I don't even see the heat. Why? Because all I see is God's goodness. Because I'm trusting Him. So if you are not experiencing this, you're either experiencing one or the other. There's no middle ground here. Okay? And so we need to focus. What are we focused on? What are we seeing? Who are we trusting? And that's all in the context that we need to perfect that which is lacking the faith. We need to be so established and so focused on God's goodness <clears throat> that we are the righteousness of God. We need to be so focused on that. We need to see God's goodness, the gospel in that. The good news. We need to be so focused that on the gospel of Christ as the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. So that we can live from faith to faith because the just shall live by his faith. We need to be so focused on God 
and his goodness, his gospel, that reveals his righteousness. We need to be, not as immature children, but we need to be so established in the principles of the oracles of God. We need to be established in the, we need to be skilled in righteousness. So that we can be, not only, not only be strong ourselves, but we can be teachers. Okay? We're being disciples so that we can have disciples. We're all able ministers of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. We need, we need to be so skilled in the word of righteousness. Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Have a throne. We are serving the king. And the king has a kingdom where the king has dominion. And we've been redeemed by his blood. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. To be kings and priests in this kingdom. The kingdom of God is not here or there, but the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus said it to my Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. And there is work to do, but we need to be so established in God and His righteousness and His justice. And so His mercy and truth go before our face. All scripture. It's given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training, instruction and training in righteousness. So that we as men and women can be complete, perfected through every equipment of the Lord. Do you know this word complete, perfected, is the same word that's being used back here? How do you get perfected? You get perfected by being indoctrinated, reproved, corrected, and trained by the Word of God in righteousness. We need to be so indoctrinated in the Word of God and His righteousness. Okay? We need to, we need to so learn Christ. For the truth is in Jesus. And this truth, notice the colon, the truth that's in Jesus that we put off the old man we put off the old man. And in the spirit of our mind, we put on the new man who is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. We need to so learn this. Where does faith come from? Hearing the word of God. And this truth is in Jesus. And what is the truth? What is the specific truth that we need to so learn? That we put off the old man and the spirit of our mind, we put on the new man who is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then we also need to know his love. We need to establish his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We need to be established in that. And we need to know and believe the love that God has for us because God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. That is the point of it all. That is the point of the gospel. That is the point of Christianity. That is the point of eternal life. That we know him. Now we abide in him, and he abides in us. Yes, one of the main benefits is that we get to go to heaven, and we get to avoid hell. But the main, that's not the main message. That's not the main point. 
The main point is having a relationship with God. Well, we abide in Him and He abides in us. If we're not experiencing this abiding, we've missed the whole point of Christianity. If you don't like spending time with God now, why are you going to want to spend God, time with God in all eternity face to face? Okay? Because some of you, you don't care about a relationship with God. You only care about escaping hell. And who doesn't want to escape hell? <laughs> okay? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to minimize hell and heaven. I'm trying to exalt a relationship with God that includes heaven and avoids hell. Those are the benefits. Those are, that's a major, major benefit of Christianity. But that's not the message. The message is being restored to right relationship with God, which is also called righteousness. Okay. So a lot of what I just shared is a Kind of a recap of what we shared over the last uh, seven weeks in the first uh, three segments of this teaching of being established in righteousness. But today, like I said, we're going to be starting a new segment called being a subtle beguilement. <coughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the phrase subtle beguilement is exactly what it means. It's subtle. It's not just out there. It's, it's something that's subtle, has a tendency of being deceiving, cunning, crafty, okay? There's a subtlety that's part of the wisdom of God, and we can study, we've asked study that before from the book of Proverbs, okay? So there's a good side to that, but there's a, usually it's, most usually subtle is using a negative connotation, okay, even in the word of God. Beguilement. Beguilement means you're deceived. You've been beguiled. And there's a subtle beguilement that we need to be aware of. So in other words, this segment that we're teaching is a warning. Okay? I mean, we know if you read the Word of God, there's some warnings. Okay? Not everything's a bed of roses until Jesus comes. We are still at war with the devil in our flesh. Okay? It's called the fight of faith. Okay? And we're not fighting with balloons or pillows or whatnot. This is a fight. This is life and death for many people. In a, in a, in a subtle beguiling. So where do we get this? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we left off last week. I said we would come back here. And um, so we'll, we'll pick it up in chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll pick it up in verse 2. It says, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, For I am jealous for you. This is a church that Paul is apostle over. I'm jealous for you. For you. He's not jealous of them. He's jealous for them. There's a difference. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. And that's Christ. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is telling the church of Corinth, 
I'm jealous with you with a guy of jealousy because I have betrothed you to one husband that you may be a chaste virgin to Christ. Everything that he's done in his ministry for the church of Corinth, he did so that he could present them as a glorious church, a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay. But like he told the church in Thessalonica, I come to perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Okay? So, I want to get down to verse 4, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Okay? So, let's talk about this real quick. What does he mean, for I have betrothed you to one husband? Let's, let's just take that phrase and, and, and expand on that just for a moment. See, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. It's an intimate relationship. In a natural way, the most intimate relationship you can have is between a husband and a wife. In a spiritual and real way, the most intimate relationship you can have is between you and God. Now, a lot of people teach that the first relationship God established was marriage. No, that was the second relationship he established. The first relationship God established was between man and God. Between Adam and himself. Second of that was marriage. The first relationship is always between you and God. Even among your spouse. Okay? The best thing you can do for your marriage is you to have this intimate relationship with God. And the best thing you can do as a pastor or a minister is your relationship with God. <coughs> okay. So let's talk about this relationship. See, Christianity is not a religion. I hate that word. And anytime it comes up, I, I, I just can't hold my tongue. I will rebuke it. Christianity that emphasis on Christ. Christianity is not a religion far from it. It's a relationship with God. So as we're talking about being a betrothed or a spouse to one husband, I want to look at a few different passages of scripture. First one I want to look at is Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to compare Sarah and Hagar. So turn with me if you will to Galatians chapter 4. <coughs> we'll pick it up in verse 21. So now Paul's writing to the church of Galatia, and he's making this allegory. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Let's pause here just for a minute. Paul starts off, and we're, we're picking it up. Those of you who desire to be under the law, do you really know what the law says? You're so adamant, you're so zealous to be under the law, do you really know what the law says? For it is written that Abraham and all the Jews, and even Gentiles, we know who Abraham is. He's the father of our faith. Abraham had 
two sons. He didn't just have Isaac, he had Ishmael. That's a whole other story. We're going to get there. He had two sons. The one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. One by Hagar, one by Sarah. One father, two sons, two mamas, two women, two ladies. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman, the promise. This is the New Testament. This is Paul speaking here in Galatians. Okay? Let's go to verse 24. Which things are symbolic? Some translations will call which are an allegory. Okay? The, these, these two sons, these two women, are an allegory. They are symbolic. Did it really happen? Yes. Real life events. There was a real Abraham, there were really two sons, and there were really two women involved. One, Paul's called the bottom woman, one supreme woman. One, one of the sons was born according to the flesh, one was born according to promise. And all of this is symbolic. It's all an allegory. And these are the two covenants. These two sons are also two covenants. That's huge. If you understand the power of a covenant, especially when God makes it, when God's involved, because you may forget the covenant, God doesn't. Okay? God will honor his word above his own name. Okay? The one from Mount Sinai, we're talking about the wrong one, that's why the highlight are different colors. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. But this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. It corresponds with Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So just a few little footnotes. I'm not, I'm not making any major points here yet. But so we got two. We got one. One man. And now this is all under the umbrella of, of Paul saying, do you really know what the law says? That Abraham had two sons. One born one born woman, one born of bond woman, one born of free woman. One born of Hagar, and one born of Sarah. Of Sarah. One is from Mount Sinai. That's the law. And one is born of Jerusalem from above. Which is the mother of us all. Why? Because if we're born of Abraham, if we're of Christ, we are Abraham's seed. And we're not of the seed of the bondwoman, we're the seed of the free. Okay, that's where he's going with this. So I hope that makes sense so far. Let's go to verse 27. For it's written, Rejoice, all barren women. He's quoting from the Old Testament. You know, the gospel is in the New Testament, but it's, it's, it's a mystery in the Old Testament. It's there. Paul, Jesus, John, James, they all quoted from the Old Testament to preach the gospel unto us. Rejoice, O bear woman, who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who, who has a husband. This is talking about Sarah. 
in relation to Hagar. This whole, now, some of you have gleaned on this, and I'm not trying to take away from that, as long as what you gleaned is biblical, but this is a prophecy regarding Sarah, regarding Isaac, regarding one of the covenants that we have with God. It's all symbolic. And he's talking about what the law says to those who want to be under the law. Okay? Verse 28. Now, we, now is, now, we are, we, brethren, he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to the heathen, he's talking to brethren. As Isaac was, our children of promise, now we, but as Isaac was, a children of promise. As Isaac was a children of promise, now we are. Are you getting that? Just like Isaac was a children of promise, we, the brethren, are too. But as he, who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, as Isaac, even so it is now. <coughs> you know, most of the persecution that we see in the biblical times, and even in our times, let me rephrase that, most of the persecution we see in the New Testament didn't come from Rome. Now, I'm not saying Rome didn't get involved and didn't take a swing at it and didn't enjoy it. And there was, I'm not saying there wasn't no persecution from the world, but some of the most of the persecution that we see with Jesus, with the apostles, came from the religious church, legalistic church, which is born according to the flesh. Because who's Ishmael? He's born of Hagar. He's born under the law, bondage, the law, Mount Sinai, the law. Paul is answering the question, do you hear the law? Those of you who want to be under the law, you're telling me you're an Ishmael. That's what Paul's saying. Because there's two covenants. Either you're in Christ or you're in Adam. Either you're of Isaac, of the free woman, or you're of Hagar, of Ishmael, the bondwoman. Those of you who want to be in the law, you're telling me you're not of the children of promise. You are an Ishmael. And the Ishmaels, from day one, have been persecuting the Isaacs. That's what happened with Cain and Abel. That's what happened with Joseph and his brethren. And some of that turmoil still happened today. That's what happened with David and Eliab, his brother. That's what happened with Jesus and the Pharisees. That's what happened with um, Isaac and Jacob. And I'm not necessarily going in order. That's what happened with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the apostles. That's what happened with uh, the older brother and uh, prodigal in the story of the prodigal son. 
in Luke, Luke chapter 15, which we covered just, uh, uh, I think, last week. This persecution of the older brother, because Ishmael was over. It was always an older brother persecuting the younger brother. Cain and Abel, Eliab and David, Joseph and his brothers, and the list goes on. I'm not picking, if you're in the order of one of the family, I'm not picking on you, okay? But there's a symbolism in Scripture, okay? There's an allegory. And Paul is very blunt here. As he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. It's, it has to change. But it, again, remember, he's answering the question, those who want to be on the law, do you really know what the law says? Because after we have understood this, go to verse 31. Or 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? What does the law say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So if you want to be under the law, do you know what the law says? You're an Ishmael. And what does the scripture say? Cast out Ishmael. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So the brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. <coughs> if you want to be under the law, then you can't pick and choose what the law says. Because the law, the scriptures say, if you're not under the law, I mean, if you're under the law, you're not of Isaac. You're not of the free woman. And the scripture says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son. So if you are in we're talking about he's betrothed to one husband. So are you betrothed to the law? Because if you're betrothed to the law, you're cursing yourself. The law, we've already established this and we'll look at this some more later, the law is a ministry of death and condemnation. It will only condemn you. It will only make tell you that you must die. It's a bondwoman. It's a persecutor of the church. Okay? So let's look at another passage of scripture here. And what we're talking about, again, we're looking at, he betrothed us to one husband. Let's go to another passage of scripture in the book of Romans, chapter 7. And Paul says, we'll begin in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, again, he's talking to the church, for I speak to those who know the law. Now, let's go back real quick one more time. Even in Galatians, uh, what was that? Okay, never mind. Okay, brethren, yeah. He's talking to the brethren. Here, in Romans, he's talking to the brethren. He's talking to the church. For I speak to those who know the law. It's not wrong to know the law. We'll get to it in a minute. The law is holy. The law is good. Okay? But he said, here in Romans chapter 7, he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who do not, who, who know the law, 
that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Paul painted the picture in Romans chapter 7 that we were married to the law. Okay? Again, a lot of this is symbolic. It really happened, but it's an allegory. Okay? So, let's read it again. Do you not know, brethren, do you not know, church, I speak to those who know the law, He's not talking to those who don't know the law. He's talking to the church in Rome who know the law. He's talking to the church who know the law. That the law would have dominion over a man as long as he lives. Okay? For the woman, because this is all written in the law, if you read the book of Leviticus, you read the Levitical law, and this might not sound sound. Just women. I'm not picking on women. The word of God. I'm not picking on women. Yeah, keep in mind. A lot of this is symbolic. There's a message here, and it's not about you. It's about the gospel. It's about these two covenants. It's about these two sons. Okay. Now you might not be using that language here in Romans. See, in Galatians, he's talking about two sons. That's the allegory. Two moms, two sons, one father. In Romans chapter 7, he's using this um, language of being betrothed, of marriage, between the law. Okay? The law has dominion over a Why? Because he's married to her. Okay? When a woman has a, has, who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he, the husband, lives. <coughs> And this allegory that he's making in Romans chapter 7, the law is the husband. But if the husband dies, okay, she is released from the law of her husband. So as long as the husband lives, the husband has dominion over her. The law is a ministry of condemnation and death. The law... It does not have grace. And the law does not have mercy. The law is not flexible. The law, let's go back here, is a bondwoman. The law is a hard taskmaster. Okay? So as long as the husband lives, the woman is bound to her husband. According to what? The law. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Or he's wrong the law. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband lived, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. Why? Because she's married to two people. You can't be married to two people at the same time. I know it always seems funny how in old biblical times, and it never worked out, and God condemned it, but in biblical times, the husband could have multiple wives, but the wife could not have multiple husbands. That didn't seem fair. It never worked out anyway. It always caused problems. It was always an issue. But why is that so? I don't know all the answers to that question, but I know, I know one of the answers is the whole thing was an allegory. 
of the gospel of these two covenants that we're talking about today. Okay? So, then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, for that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. In other words, as long as her husband lives and she's married, she's bound to stay in that relationship. But her, so her only way out is the husband dies, and now she's free to marry another man. Okay? So that's, 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 that's what the law, he's just repeating what the law says. Okay? Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, he's still talking to church, you also have, bec you also have become dead to the law. We were married to the law. Like it or not, we were. Who married us? Adam. Okay? I don't have time to go there right now. But we were, but because, because therefore, my brother, you also have become dead to the law. How did we become dead to the law? Through the body of Christ. Jesus fulfilled our righteousness. Jesus put all that on himself. Colossians talks about how he nailed the written requirements that were against us to the cross. And Jesus crucified him. We are dead to the law. Why? Through the body of Christ. That you may be married to another. To him. To Jesus who was raised from the dead. We were married to the law. We were in bondage to the law. As long as the law lived. But we were free from the law through the body of Christ that we might be married to him who was raised from the dead. That we should bear fruit to God. A lot of you on Facebook and many things, you preach about holiness. You preach about right living and living godly. That is all good. But the only way we can bear fruit to God, having fruit of holiness, fruit of righteousness, is that we are first free from the law and married to Christ. See, a lot of you preach holiness and godly living from a legalistic standpoint. You cannot bear fruit to God being married to the law. You have to come to the revelation that you are crucified with Christ. You have to come to revelation by God, by the Holy Spirit, that you are dead to the law, and you are betrothed to Christ. Because that's what we're talking about. <coughs> Paul said, I betrothed you to one husband, that you might be a chaste virgin to Christ. But through Christ, we are dead to the law because of the body of Christ, that we might be married to another, to him who raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Okay? He's not that. He's only verse 4. To me, those are the, 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 those are the four primary verses of this chapter. Everything else he's going to do, he's just going to expound on that. Okay? Verse 5. But when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were, which were aroused by the law. See, we were in the flesh... Now we're born again. We don't know no man after the flesh. We've already covered this. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter uh, um, five. 
for all died. We know no man not the flesh. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We have put off the old man, the spirit of our minds. We put on the new man who's created according to God, true righteousness, holiness. We've been born again. Okay? When we were in the flesh, that's past tense. The simple passions were aroused by the law. The law aroused our sinful passions. And that's sacrilegious to some of you, but that's the word of God. Which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Instead of bearing fruit to God, we were bearing fruit to death. <coughs> but now, when's now? We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the witness of the Spirit, not in the fullness of the letter. Okay? I love this. You know? There's so much here. When we were in the flesh, our simple passions were aroused by the law itself. The same law that was condemning us was arousing our, our simple passions. We were stuck. We were, it's called bondage. Nothing we could do was right because the same law that condemned us aroused our passion, simple passions. It was a two-edged sword. We couldn't win. But now, we have been delivered from the law. We're no longer in a snare. Having died to what we were held by. Not just so we can be free to go sin. No. The law aroused sin. We have been free from the law so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We're not serving the letter, which aroused sin. We are serving the newness of the Spirit. And again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul compares the ministry of death and condemnation to the ministry of righteousness, which is also the ministry of the Spirit. So when we're serving the newness of the Spirit, we're serving the newness of righteousness. Are you following me? And not in the oldness of the letter. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? I mean, he paints a picture pretty vivid here. That the law aroused sin. It condemned us. It judged us. It killed us. But it, it was the culprit. It aroused it. But now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We've been free from the cycle of sin, this endless cycle that was a snare. So then the obvious question, and people will come accuse me, uh, just they, they accuse Paul, so what, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because the law is the one arousing this stuff. Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. You know, there were some things I've done wrong in my life. I didn't know it until someone told me it was wrong. I didn't know it was wrong. So why was I doing it? There was something in my flesh that was arousing that. Okay? Anyway. Have you got something out of that? So Paul's not saying the law is bad, but he is painting a picture of what the law they do. The law is not our friend. It's holy, it's good, but it can't save you. It can only condemn you. 
It can only arouse your sinful passions and kill you. We're doing it. Okay? Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, sin, and taking opportunity, why, how did it take opportunity by the commandment? It aroused it. Okay? It aroused that passion. Taking opportunity by the, some people think grace, grace is given us an opportunity to sin. No, the law is. You're deceived. We're talking about subtle beguilement. We haven't got to the beguilement part yet. Okay? But the commandment, produce in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Before Adam's sin, taking of the law, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, sin was dead. It never existed. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The Holy Spirit's got to reveal this to you. I can teach it to you, but the Holy Spirit's got to reveal what I'm teaching to you. Okay? And the commandment, which was what to bring life, I found to bring death. That's why I call it ministry of death. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. We've already covered that. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me. That's the beguilement. And by it killed me. The, the law deceived me and it killed me. Therefore the law is holy. Wow. How can this killer, deceiver, be holy? And the commandment holy and just and good. Again, the Holy Spirit's got to reveal this to you. I can teach it to you. But the Holy Spirit's got to reveal this to you. See, again, it killed me. Again, I keep quoting it, but the law is the, the, the ministry of death written and engraved on stone. There's only one thing that was written and engraved on stone. That's the law. It's called the ministry of death. It's also called the ministry of condemnation. He was comparing the ministry of righteousness with the ministry of the Spirit. So this, the ministry of the Spirit which we were back here. What we're we talking about, okay? He's talking about the ministry of righteousness. So anyway, just throw this in here. Just we've already talked about this. Paul didn't just talk about it one time in the book of Romans chapter seven. Some people will say, "Well, you're just not understanding Romans chapter seven. No, you're not understanding the New Testament because Paul talked about this in many places. I can bring it out in Colossians. I can bring it out in Thessalonians." I can bring out Corinthians. I can bring out Romans. I can bring out all Paul's scriptures. I mean, every letter. Okay? Let's go back to Romans. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Verse 13. Again, he, just like he asked the question a minute ago. Is the law sin? No. Well, he's got to bring up another question here. Verse 13. Has then what is good? Because he just called it holy and good. He called it a killer. He called it a deceiver. And then he called it holy. So, is what is good <coughs> become death to me? No, certainly not. But sin, 
that it might appear sin was producing death in me to what is good. So that sin to the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Wow. Again, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal this to you. So Paul says in verse 12 that sin took occasion by the commandment. Are you following me? The sin was the one was the one who aroused this thing, these desires, and deceived them, he killed them. And then after he calling the law a killer and deceiver, he says it's holy, it's just, it's good. Pustin and confused. Okay? And then, so he asked the question, is the law what's good become death means? No! Well, you just said it killed me, it deceived me. It aroused my, my desires, but it's only good. And then you tell me what is good didn't become death to me. Well, you just said it killed me. What are you saying? And then you then you, you say no, certainly not, with an exclamation mark, but sin, <coughs> excuse me, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. What's good? The law. So that sin through the commandment, the law, might become exceedingly sinful. You just said it wasn't. Now you're saying it becomes exceedingly sinful. You just escalated it. You just magnified it. What's going on? Sin was already at work in us. But the law had to come as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, as a husband, as an arousal, a deceiver, to expose what was already in your heart, which was already in your simple nature. See, this word sin is used 47 times in the book of Romans. It's a noun. It's not a verb. Two times it's a, it's a noun. It's a verb. 45 or 47 times it's a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing. It's not talking about the action. It's talking about the sinful nature that we have from Adam. And sin, our nature, had to be aroused. And it had to, not to become more Yes, to become more seen and sinful. But we need to see that we were in bondage and we were a wretched man or woman so that we can see that we need a Savior. We needed to see the exceedingness of sin so we can see that we are a mess without Christ. He says, I betrothed you to one husband. And I thought that he could present us in a chaste version of Christ. This, this, this exceeding sinfulness doesn't look like anything but a chaste virgin. But quite the opposite. But he wants to betroth us to, to one husband. Now, if you continue to read the book of Romans, he'll say, Oh, wretched man that I am. He's talking about his old man. Okay? 
Are you following me so far? See, right now, I'm, I can keep going in the book of Romans chapter 7 and even into chapter 8. But I want you to see here, and he started this whole Romans 7 back in Romans chapter 6 and 5 and 4. I mean, I could go all the way back to the beginning of the book. You need to read the book of Romans and study it. Okay? But he says in context here back in Corinthians, I'm jealous with you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a, a chaste version of Christ. But in order to do that, we need to see how bad we were. Without Christ. That only Christ can clean, that, clean us out, sanctify us, and make us a glorious church, a chaste version of Christ. We're born again. So I want to, before I go further though, I want to piggyback now on this chaste virgin to Christ. What are we talking about, Chase Virgin? Okay. Before I go there, though, real quick, I just want to recap what Romans 7 says in the first four verses. Do you not know, brethren, that the law had dominion over her husband while she lives? When a woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband until as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and she no longer adulteress, but she marries another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. That you might be this chaste virgin to Christ, betrothed to him, to one husband. But, whoops, go backwards that you may be able to marry each another to him who is raised from the dead, that we may show our fruit to God as a chaste virgin. This is awesome. This is a beautiful thing, but we need to know that we are free from the law. We are free from a sinful nature. We are, free. we are no longer bound. We are no longer married to our flesh. We have been released by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Him who was raised from the dead. Now I want to piggyback on this chaste version. Okay. First place I want to go to is that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes the Jew first and also Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith, because the just, the chaste, shall live by. We are justified. We are chaste. We are righteous. The gospel of Christ reveals this righteousness that we, the just, the justified, shall live by faith. Okay? I need to use another scripture that we've already looked at. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you haven't learned, heard from him and been taught by him, as the truth in Jesus. There's a, there's a truth in Jesus that we are the soul learn, knows the colon, that we put off the old man that grows corrupt. This old man that grows corrupt is what we just wrote about in Romans 7. That became exceedingly sinful to his deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of their mind that you put on the new man. It's a new man. 
He doesn't have simple desires. He's a new man. He's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And was created according to God. God doesn't have simple nature. He doesn't have simple passions. And true righteousness is pure. We're talking about a pure, chaste virgin. We have true righteousness and we have true holiness. And it's only found in Jesus. It's only found in this truth that we put on in the spirit of our minds. See, again, this is Ephesians chapter 4. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul expounds, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. If you connect the scriptures together, what Paul is saying in Ephesians, what Paul is saying in Corinthians, what Paul is saying in Thessalonians, what Paul is saying in Galatians, what Paul is saying in Romans, he is presenting us as a trace virgin to Christ. Okay? He died for us. He loved us. It became the propitiation for our sins. What we talked about the last two weeks. He gave himself for us. That he might sanctify and cleanse us. We were wretched. We were exceedingly sinful. We were unbound to the law. We were, some of us were Ishmaels, born of the wrong mother, wrong covenant. He sanctified. He cleansed us with the washing water by the word that he might present us to himself. A glorious church. A glorious church to me is this chaste virgin. Okay? Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Being holy and without blemish is a totally different picture than what I see back here in Romans chapter 7. Let's go back here, verse 13. That's a totally different person. He has presented us as a chaste virgin to Christ. And how did he do that? Through the cross. He cleansed, up. he cleaned us up. He sanctified us. He made us a glorious church that we should be holy and without blemish. It goes on to say, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one shall ever has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and flesh of his flesh and bone. For, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, <coughs> excuse me, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Okay? So, this whole, this whole purpose of, of we are flesh with his flesh, and we are members of his body and flesh and bones. That's, you know, we talked about how Hagar and Sarah were an allegory and the two sons. We talked about how the law, I mean, marriage and law was an allegory. Well, marriage is an allegory. Okay? It's speaking of Christ and the church. Marriage is real. God has ordained marriage. Don't get me wrong. But 
He gives a beautiful picture of what marriage should look like. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is an admonishment. Okay? That is a commandment, if you want to put it that way. Okay? But so there's instructions here about wives and husbands in the context here. Okay? But he's not talking about that specifically. He's talking about Christ and the church. To us, to the those under the law, and to the world, it's a great mystery. But God is talking about Christ and his church. He's talking about how he's betrothed us to one husband. That we could be present uh, and have a chaste version of Christ. How we presented the chaste version of Christ? Because he presented us to himself a glorious church. Through, by cleansing us, sanctifying us. So that we can be holy and not blemish. This is awesome. If this doesn't get you excited, your wood is wet. But let me just piggyback on this whole, and the two shall become one flesh. It says in, um, in, in Matthew, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh, therefore where God is joined together, let none of them separate. This is true for marriage, but this is even more true between Christ and the church. What God has joined together, let no man separate. In Mark, Therefore, where God has joined together, let no man separate. <coughs> and I've already taught on this, but I'll teach on it again. The Psalm of Psalms, for example, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care what you say about yourself. But God, God has already said through 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 Paul's word, that he has already sanctified, cleansed you to become a glorious church without spot or wrinkle so that you may be a chaste virgin of Christ. And he did that through the cross. And no matter what you see, if you're in Christ, he loves you. And as far as he's concerned, there is no spot. Some people think that's self-righteous. Well, you didn't do it. God did. Christ did. Christ presented you to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And for you to say that's not true, you blaspheme in the cross. Stop it. I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to reprove you. There's a difference. I don't say that with malice. I don't say that with spite. I say that wake up to what the cross meant. Don't despise the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believeth. We are the righteous. I'm not saying I'm the righteous. I'm saying we are the righteous God in him. That includes me. That includes you. As long as you've been reconciled to God, you are the righteous God in him. You are all fair, my beloved, and there is no spot in you. One more, Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has been made has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in the fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
It's that robe of righteousness and fine linen. It's awesome. He's talking about how we've been betrothed to one husband as a chaste virgin to Christ. Just about out of time. Let's see if I can finish this uh, section up here. So, we talked about this, we already got the verse 2 so far. We got far. Let's go to verse 3. Let's add verse 3. So we've already read the first verse 2. For I am jealous with you in God's jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste to Christ. And this is Paul speaking. But I fear that lest somehow as a servant deceive Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Okay? What's the simplicity that's in Christ? Okay, well, we'll get we'll get to that in just a minute. Let's go back up here too. But I fear that let's have somehow as the serpent deceive Eve. When did the serpent deceive Eve? Let's go back to Genesis. Okay. Now the serpent was more cunning. There's that subtleness, that cunningness, than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? See, Paul is saying, the same way that Satan or the serpent deceived Eve, I fear you're going to be deceived in the same way. What did, how did the serpent, because the same way that the serpent deceived Eve is how, how, what he's fearing that you will also be deceived. How, <coughs> <coughs> in the same way, as the servant deceived by his God, so your mind will be corrupted from the spirit of Christ. How did he deceive Eve? Because how he deceived Eve is the same way he's out to deceive us. He deceived Eve by questioning her what God said. Are you questioning that if you're a believer, you're the righteous of God in Christ Jesus? Are you questioning anything that I preached this morning? That you're all fair, my beloved, there's no spot in you. Are you questioning what the Word of God says? That you're all that He He's a propitiation of your sins, that He's cleansed you, sanctified you, made you holy, spot without blemish. That you are you questioning that you have put on the new man, which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness? Are you questioning anything the gospel reveals that He reveals this righteousness that you the just should live by faith? Are you questioning? Anything God has said. See, if you read the context of these scriptures, you would already know that God had already told them. This is Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 1, he already said they were made in God's image and likeness. <coughs> Satan deceived them through the serpent, saying that if they partake of the tree, they will become like God. They were already like God. They were already created in His image and His likeness. So they doubted what God said. How many of you are doubting what God said? Now, I've read you a lot of scriptures this morning, and I'm not even done. Okay? In other words, Paul is saying here that the same way that the, the serpent beguiled Eve, you too can be beguiled. From the simplicity that's in Christ. It's simple. 
It's a very simple message. But your mind can be corrupted because of the deception. The same way he deceived Eve, your mind can be corrupted. Satan is trying to beguile the second Adam's life. In the same manner he beguiled the bride of the first Adam. See, Eve was Adam's wife. We have been betrothed to one husband. We are the second Adam's, or the last Adam's wife. In the same way that he tried to beguile the first Adam's wife, he's trying to beguile the last Adam's wife, you and me. So be, beware. This is a warning. Okay? And he's not saying this out of spite. He's saying this out of a godly jealousy. Okay? I just got a lot to cover. I just don't know how far I want to go with this. Because I don't want to feel rushed, I feel like I need to stop here and pick it up here next week with me recapping a little bit what I just said here in the last... Um, um, let me just say a little bit more. I'm going to say it a little fast, but I'm going to come back and reteach some of this, okay? Uh, and a little slower. Okay, we, so uh, that's what we got so far. Um, one more scripture. Just trying to fit this in here. I uh, lost my track, but. So we're talking about how, as a serpent deceived Eve. We're talking about that. And I had this on, on here. I'm just trying to see if I can fit everything I want in here. In Romans chapter 10, Paul, in context, Paul is comparing those who have a zealous for God, but of self-righteousness. He's comparing self-righteousness with true righteousness. And the righteous God speaks in this way. Do not, it doesn't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into abyss, that is, bring Christ up from the dead. I don't have time to go into all that right now. But what does it say? What the, the righteous God speaks... The righteousness of faith speaks to the righteousness of faith. Two concepts speaks. But what does it say? The word is near your, your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we have preached, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him today, if you in death, you will be saved. But with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, Confession is made to God, salvation. I have this here. I should actually push this down further in my notes because really what I'm talking about right here is this simplicity that's in Christ. How do we become saved? We confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. We're saved. And some people are deceived that it can be that simple. There's a lot behind what's in our mouth and what's in our heart. There's a lot behind that. We have to understand the gospel. We have to understand that God was raised from the dead. We have to understand this Jesus who was raised from the dead. I'm going to go back a little bit. I hope I can find it real quick. We have to understand this Jesus, going back to Galatians. We have to understand this Jesus who was raised from the dead. Because that's what was here. 
I need to, I need to fix this so it can get a little more smoother. That's what we're believing here. That he was raised from the dead. And we have to not just believe the fact that he was raised from the dead, but why? Why was he raised from the dead? We need to know our why. We need to understand the gospel. We don't have to be scholars yet at the beginning, but we need to know enough of what's going on. Okay? And as we become saved, we need to be discipled into who we are in Christ. Why do we want to be discipled? We want to be discipled so that we are not deceived. Like Eve was. Are you sure you're a Christian? Because all you said was a prayer. We need to know why we believe, why we believe. Why? So that the enemy does not corrupt our minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. We need to be established in righteousness. That's what we're talking about. If we're not established in righteousness, we are on we are on thin ice with the devil trying to deceive us and talk us out of salvation. Which is something that I'll have to get into later. I don't have time to develop that right now. Okay. There's much more. I just don't feel like I can go into and give justice to everything I want to say. Because sometimes if I, if I open the door and say something, but I don't finish my thought, and then I have to cut it off for a whole week, then all week you guys are stewing over something that I didn't even get to finish the thought. And that is not what I want to happen. So hopefully I'm making sense. And I feel like I'm kind of already doing that right now. Like, uh, so anyway, I just want to end on this note. Um, that God, Paul saying, these are some strong words. We, 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 we read a lot of good stuff this morning. But there's a warning here that we need to, that we are betrothed to one husband, so we are a changed version of Christ. But he fears that just as he did, when Eve was deceived, the, the spouse of the first Adam, so we, the spouse of the last Adam, we would deceive that our minds would be corrupted with simplicity in Christ. Let me just say this. We already established the fact that through the law, which we just talked about all morning, their minds were blinded. But until this day, the, the bell remains uplifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the bell is taken away in Christ. And it's only when, when one turns to the Lord, the bell is taken away. Where we experience true freedom. And this even if our gospel is built, it's built in those churches whose minds the God is blinded. That's Satan. Beguiling the blessed Goliath, the gospel of the, uh, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Okay, we need to get a revelation of the gospel and be established in it. Okay? Paul not only um, in, in, in uh, Paul not only in 2 Corinthians 11 but also here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's making sure that we are not blinded by the truth that's in Christ. Who we are. We need to know the truth because the truth that we know will set us free. That's where it was right here. Free. We need to be free. Not to sin, but from sin. We just read that. We were betrothed. We were married to the law. We are now free. We're not... We're not sons of the free bondwoman. We're sons of the free. 
not to sin, but to be free from sin. The law is the one that arouses our sin. It's holy and good. It, 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 made, it made us exceedingly sinful so that we could know that we need a Savior. Jesus cleanses up. But now that Jesus cleanses up and he says, you're all fair, my beloved, there's no spot in you. If we're not careful, the enemy is going to come and he's going to, um, go back here, he's going to try to beguile us. And it's a subtle beguilement. He'll use the law. And the law is good. The law is holy. But as Paul said, the law is good if it's used lawfully. And many people are not using the law lawfully. And they make what's a good thing a bad thing. Okay? So anyway, we'll clear some of that up next week. Hopefully this is good. So this, this is part four. This is segment four of a, of a six-segment message. Okay? And then, uh, um, but, um, this is my most sobering segment because we're, there's a warning in here. But there's a lot of truth wrapped around this, 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 this warning, too. Um, this will help you. Because this is where people, it's all good at one point, but then they, they, they seem to jump off the wagon. Uh, because this, this point is not taught. This point is not understood. And so, until, you know, you know the danger about deception is, if you're deceived, you don't know it. So I'm trying to bring exposure to the deception so you can't be deceived. Once someone tells you, once you have a revelation that you're deceived, you're no longer deceived, and you can do something about it. Okay? But you can't do something about deception if you don't know you're deceived. The only way deception is, is, is broken is it's got to be exposed. Okay? We have to turn the light on. We have to remove the veil. And you can only remove the veil by preaching Christ. And the veil is removed so we can see and we can be free. Not to sin, but to live holy and live righteous. Amen. God bless. You guys, you have a good week.